You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, we are looking at No New Roads, our ongoing conversation about the way we finance transportation in this country. There was an article published in The New Yorker last year called The Trouble with Mega Projects. It, it quoted the former Speaker of the California State Assembly, Willie Brown, as saying uh, about a big project in San Francisco, we always knew the initial estimate was way under the real cost. If people knew the real cost from the start, nothing would ever get approved. The idea is to get it going, start digging a hole, and make it so big, there's no alternative to coming up with the money to fill it in. I've got on the line with me the former mayor of Seattle, Michael McGinn. You guys got a hole there, <laughs> Mr. Mayor. <laughs> we, most certainly, we most certainly do. I want to talk about your time on the council because the the project known as the Big Bertha, the big boring uh, underneath, uh, you know, that's been stuck and now is going again, but is stopped now. This was a very interesting uh, way this all came about. And I, I, I wish you could take us back and. Talk a little bit about how you first were introduced to this and, and how it became part of the, the dialogue there in your time on the city council. Um, so, no, that's a great question. And so the background is, and you're referring to the Alaska Way Viaduct Replacement Project, in which you know, we had an aging 1950s concrete structure built on the waterfront. Um, its foundations were in fill, didn't even reach the bedrock beneath it. And there was an earthquake in Seattle that gave it a good shake. Um, not enough of a shake to take it down, thank goodness, but enough for everyone to realize that it needed to be replaced. And so we ended up in a multi-year discussion in the city of Seattle. And one one proposal, initially proposed by the then mayor, Greg Nichols, was to build a cut-and-cover tunnel through the city. You know, basically you dig a, dig a big trench and then you cover it over. Um, to replace it, billions and billions of dollars. And then you had the state Republicans and the state legislature saying, uh, "Just let's just rebuild that elevated highway, but to modern standards, which would have made it much bigger. And then you had a combination of kind of downtown interests and environmental interests saying, why can't we just do what San Francisco did or New York did or now Seoul, Korea has done? Can't we just take it out? We don't really need the highway. No, good chance, a good opportunity to take away a mistake. And at the end of the day, you know, through many twists and turns, there was a decision made to build a deep bore tunnel. And the promise that was made was that this is a new technology. It'll be cheaper than a cut and cover tunnel. And don't you worry about costs because, you know, these guys know what they're doing. And that just hasn't worked out. The machine got stuck. It's been stuck for two years. They had to dig a big pit, pull it out of the ground, rebuild it stick it back in the ground, get it going again. And just as they got it going again, uh, some big sinkholes formed behind it, which is scary because if those if it goes under the elevated, which they've kept open all this time, and sinkholes formed under the elevated or formed under downtown buildings, that would be a disaster. So right now the governor has a stop work order on it. The tunnel project uh, folks say, 
you know, trust us. We know what we're doing, and you shouldn't be stopping us. Uh, lawsuits have been filed. Uh, lawyers have been hired. And there will be, uh, you know, additional costs for the project. What was the conversation when this was being debated? Was the need for the tunnel really one of congestion and traffic? Is it really that simple? Well, the argument was that, you know, Seattle is, is something of an hourglass. So one side is, is Puget Sound and Elliott Bay, and the other side is a very long lake called Lake Washington. And there was, you know, just the belief that, you know, we needed another highway. I-5 runs right through the center of that hourglass. Um, but what's interesting about this highway is that it was built very early, and it doesn't really connect to any other highways. It, 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 it goes out onto surface streets. In fact, there were proposals back in the 70s to connect the waterfront highway to I-5 with, uh, with a cross, you know, with a highway that would go through the uh, South Lake Union neighborhood, another one that would go through the historic neighborhood of Pioneer Square, and they were stopped. And fortunately, Seattle was rescued from the fate of, you know, a noose of highways around its downtown. Uh, but there's just a bedrock belief, and particularly from, you know, Microsoft, Boeing, the Seattle port, that highways are absolutely essential to traffic movement, and we just need it. So you had that business push on one side. Then you had the other businesses, which were downtown property owners, downtown developers, and businesses who wanted to remove the eyesore of a, you know, an old concrete highway on the waterfront. So they compromised. They build a highway, they they bury it, and by golly, the taxpayers would pay for it, and they would just recognize that it was good for them in the long run, even if it did cost a little bit more. Everybody gets what they want. Everybody gets what they want, except for. You know, uh, except for the, the taxpayers now, who were, you know, asked to pay for a highly risky project. Right. What was the what was the actual vote on the council? Were you were you the only one who voted against oh, it? Oh, geez. Well, I actually wasn't on a council. We have a separate, you know, I was the mayor and the mayor is not a council member. It's a, you know, chief executive type of role. OK. And uh, as I was running for office in 2009, I was opposing the tunnel as a, as a waste of money. And that we needed to be more prudent with our dollars. And we also needed to recognize, you know, global warming, that, that maybe we need to shift transit. It's the only way we're going to move people in and out of our downtown effectively. And this highway even skips downtown, right? It's a, it's a downtown bypass. So it's a bypass to the most productive place, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, downtown Seattle. And that opposition carried me into office, I, I would say. People, you know, in a very close race. But just a couple of weeks before Election Day, the city council voted 9-0 to, to build the tunnel and say that that was the city's preferred alternative. Uh, the governor wanted it. Uh, the city council wanted it. The state legislature wanted it. And basically, I found myself politically isolated in my opposition. That New Yorker article I referred to earlier actually mentions you. I don't know if you've read it or not, but it it says in, in 2009, McGinn, a Sierra Club activist with little political experience and modest financial backing, was elected mayor of Seattle. He had campaigned against the tunnel, arguing for a cheaper option, a plan already found feasible by an advisory council of state and city stakeholders to develop the city's light rail, expand bus service, and repair and reorganize streets. Your proposal sounds 
a lot messier and a lot more chaotic than, you know, this kind of clean, simple notion of, of building a tunnel and solving everyone's problems. How come that was a harder sell? What a great, well, it's a harder sell. Just as, as I said earlier, there's this kind of bedrock belief in, in highways will solve your traffic problems, which they don't. But, you know, the people believe that very firmly, um, not just big business, but also a fair number of members of the public. Um, you know, and the data shows that isn't true. But there's some interesting background here, which was I mentioned that the, the, my predecessor, Greg Nichols, wanted a tunnel. And the governor wanted a new elevated highway. And they decided to put put the both proposals up for a vote in the city of Seattle. And they it was side-by-side votes. There was an up-or-down vote on the tunnel, and there was an up-or-down vote on the elevated highway. And that was actually kind of good for us uh, folks that thought both solutions were bad. And it turned out that both lost. Wow. So the, <laughs> the tunnel lost overwhelmingly. I think it got 28 or 23 percent of the vote, roundly rejected by the public. But so did the elevated. I think it got about 46 percent of the vote, 45 percent. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was beaten pretty, pretty decisively. And so that left the state and the city in, in a quandary. So uh, a stakeholder group was put together to advise uh, the the transportation heads of the county, the city, and the state. The county runs our bus systems. And they had a great, great uh, outside consulting firm working with them. And they worked through everything, and they concluded at the end of the day that you could take out the highway, you could add more transit, you could make some changes to I-5 to improve its, uh, to remove a choke point downtown, remove some exits, remove a choke point, and collectively, those changes would accommodate all of the traffic needs and at much lower cost. Um, and it was bought off on by all of the transportation heads who recommended it to the governor, recommended it to the mayor, recommended it to the King County executive at the time. And governor wouldn't buy it, nor would, uh, nor would the port. You know, nor would the big, nor would the Seattle Chamber of Commerce. And after a year-long process, which came to this point, then a tunnel was off the table. That was the that was what was being told. Everyone was told the tunnel was off the table. Uh, an intensive business lobbying effort uh, convinced the governor to to go with this new technology of a deep bore, you know, a tunnel boring machine, largest one ever built through very very difficult soils underneath Seattle. <laughs> And she bought it. She went for it. But there was another kicker added to the story, which was, uh, and, and the governor, excuse me, the governor went for it, the mayor signed off, the county exec signed off, and all of a sudden it had switched. The governor, who had always said on the building new elevated, was now for a tunnel. The prior mayor had gotten what they wanted. But there was a twist, and the legislature said, we don't want to pay any more than what we originally agreed to pay to build a new elevated. So they said, we expect $400 million in toll revenue. They just made the number up out of thin air, really. And if there are any cost overruns, it will have to be paid by City of Seattle taxpayers. And uh, so that's where I ended up resting my opposition to the, to the project was, and was we shouldn't build the tunnel. And even if we are going to build it, the state should take responsibility for cost overruns. 
Um, because the state didn't, you know, the state said Seattle wants that tunnel. Seattle should pay for the cost overruns. Right. So that we've got this situation where we've got a massive project that was, you know, pushed through by the powerful interests, which is running into problems. And really, nobody knows what will happen when the bill comes due. You know, will the state legislature step up and appropriate more money from it? Um, will they find a way to, uh, you know, uh, stick it to Seattle? You know, maybe by taking away other money that's headed towards Seattle or by insisting that Seattle come to the table with tax revenues. Uh, but all of these fiscal issues were, you know, kind of swept aside with assurances that this technology was great. There would be no cost overruns. And at the end of the day, everybody will just love having a tunnel. So just, you know, put your teeth and make it happen. So that was the process by which we ended up with it. Um, the, the experts were simply brushed aside yeah. uh, by political power. It, it seems to me, and, and knowing you and having a chance to, to get to know you over the past few years, it it, it seems to me like the, the solution that you were advocating for was just messier and and not clear in the sense that hey you know we're going to go out and we're going to tweak our transit system and and see you know how things adjust to that we're going to try to fix some of these streets up and maybe redesign a few to get things moving and you know we might wind up with a little congestion over here but then we'll we'll try to deal with that it, it wasn't like something that you could go forward and say uh hey here's how this solves all your problems just turn the key and you're ready to go and it's almost like, you know, it's an it's a it's a easier case to make in some ways to say just, you know, one project we're done and, and everybody's problems are solved and we'll just ignore this huge amount of risk we're taking on. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. It is a lot messier. And, you know, we could point to San Francisco, which we moved to Embarcadero, which, by the way, looks remarkably similar to what elevated. And we could say, you know, look, the, the sky didn't fall. In fact, they've done really great as a result. Property values have gone up. Um, traffic jams have not materialized as a result of removing it. Um, you know, New York City removed its west side highway, reconnecting itself to its waterfront as well. So there's, there's a lot of great examples we could point to. But I think you're, you're absolutely right. People just didn't believe it. And there's, you know... The simplicity of, well, we'll just build a new highway, uh, and that'll, you know, we need it. Now, nobody would build that highway. If there were no highway there today, nobody would stomach building it in the first place. But once it's there, uh, people think you have to replace it. Yeah, it has some um, inertia. So, yeah, there's a lot of inertia around that. And uh, and so that, I, you're absolutely right. That was a huge, huge problem in in working with the public. And I could go into chapter and verse, um, and I don't have to because, again, the experts and the and the department heads all agreed that, you know, in a city, people go from lots of different places to lots of different places. Cities are really chaotic. There's, you know, thousands of origins and destinations. And the idea that one big, fat highway that, you know, bypasses all of those destinations is going to solve your traffic... This isn't true. I mean, if you look at the city of Seattle, it's probably true in other cities. It's the it's the interchanges on and off the freeways where there's the, the biggest traffic problems in Seattle because you're you're collecting all the cars into one place. And it's the street grid that disperses cars everywhere uh, that, that really is much more reliable and resilient and productive 
Um, but again, that's an argument that that takes a lot of education, and I, I think a lot of people are getting it. I think there's a lot of skepticism about new highways. I think the younger generation gets it, but to many of the, but to, again, to the big businesses that, that really have outsized influence with the legislature and to a lot of members of the public, they just wanted that highway back. Now, Seattle is a beautiful city, and Washington State is doing a, a lot of really, I, I think, leading kind of things when it comes to transportation and transportation innovation. Yet, recently, uh, you guys approved a, a big kind of compromise transportation bill that kind of, uh, in many ways, kind of follows the same mentality of the Big Bertha project. Can you just talk a little bit about the, the bill that was recently approved and how it does or doesn't change the trajectory very much in terms of what the state of Washington is going to be funding? Well, I, I think that the bill that recently passed, it shows one of the real problems in transportation policy. And I, I think we've seen it in other places as well, which is in order to build the coalition to fund highways, um, yeah, there's promises made with regard to walking, biking, and in the case of Seattle, expansion of light rail. We have a regional light rail system. They've maxed out what they can build under current taxing authority. And they needed the legislature to give them new taxing authority so they could go to the voters to further expand the light rail system. And Seattle is, you know, way behind a lot of other metro areas in terms of having regional rail connections. So the legislature essentially said, if you want your light rail, you're going to have to accept a whole bunch of new highways. And that was uh, the political compromise. And on the surface, it's very appealing, right? The argument is we need a balanced package that serves all users, and everybody has to compromise. Nobody gets everything they want. And that's often really true in politics, and I certainly understand that philosophy as well. But the package they ended up doing was heavily weighted. About 70 or 80 percent of the new money in the highway side was for new highways, was for highway expansion. Meanwhile, we have like many states, we have a, a highway system that's in desperate need of repair. I-5, which run through, runs through our downtown regularly, has the expansion joints on the bridges. I-5 is mainly a bridge through our city. It's a bridge or a trench through our city. The extent, expansion joints will pop and we'll have horrible tie-ups. And there's no money to repair I-5, which will through through Seattle. cost billions of dollars. Um, we had a the bridge fall down north of the city in a, in a county north of us. Um, they quickly replaced it, but we have bridges all over the state that are in horrible condition. But there's no – the politics around new roads just trump the politics around maintenance. So what we saw was a package that's going to deepen the problem dramatically. In fact, the state treasurer warned the legislature you know, about this because they said – you know, we're going to be we're going to see most of our gas tax money going to retire debt on new projects. We won't have any gas tax revenue for maintenance if we keep if we keep expanding the system. Um, but the politics of new highways just trumps maintenance, and of course, they the what you see is the people that want light rail uh, start demanding. You know, they'll 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 live with the highways to get the light rail. They want it so bad. 
the biking advocacy groups are happy to see a little more money. They can go back to their membership, and we got more money. Uh, we won. Uh, and the long-term financial implications of these of these decisions, as well as the long-term environmental implications, it just there's no advocate in the state who's willing to fight on that ground. Here's the thing that I find fascinating about you, and 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 very inspiring about you, is that you're observing these things at the ground level. You're not some policy wonk ensconced at some university or, or think tank. You're you're a guy out riding your bike in the neighborhood, actually talking to people, and that's how you got your start. What what's the view right now, given all this stuff we've discussed in the last twenty minutes? What what's your view from the pavement, talking to people, meeting with people, you know, biking next to people? Are people starting to get it? Is it is there a change afoot? You know, I think people are really excited about, you know, we actually see some of the earlier light rail opening up, and people are really excited about that. We have a new streetcar uh, line that just opened up. Um, people are excited about that, too. There's still, you know, the big fight anytime you want to put in a bike lane or more bike infrastructure. There's still a fight over, you know, who gets the road space. Um, it's still true with buses as well. But right now, Seattle's Seattle's booming. So people aren't worrying about the money so much. They don't, they, they, I think they're pushing aside the worry about the future. Their biggest concern is how do we get around? And Seattle traffic is, is miserable and they want somebody to do something about it. So that's one piece of the equation. The other thing I think, which is very hopeful, is we saw the rise in Seattle of a lot of grassroots groups, neighborhood based groups that want to improve walking and biking uh, in their neighborhood. And and that has made a really big difference. It's not just the, the big bicycle clubs or the statewide organizations. It's folks in a neighborhood saying we want a, a safe walking route to school for our kids. And I think you can see kind of on a street-by-street street level that there's more support for you know, converting high-speed roads into slower roads that support walking and biking. And that's really, that's really hard. But that's, that's in the urban areas of Seattle. I think, you know, out, if, if you have to commute in and out of Seattle, I think there's a tremendous degree of frustration about not being able to get around and a desire to see something done to move cars better which leads to support for highways and for more transit, which leads to support for transit as well. And nobody's really telling the public the truth. I hate to say it. Nobody's really telling the public the truth about the, the collision with uh, the maintenance needs that are coming down the road. How do you think this? How do you think this story ends? I mean, I'm 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 looking for the. Uh, there's a big part of this week, you know, the the whole no new roads thing, which is a, my gosh, we got this huge mess, and uh, you know, it's not really fixable, and we're trying to raise awareness so people know what's going on. But there's this other side to it that I I feel like your story embodies a lot, which is hey, you can actually live a really nice life. Uh, in many ways, like a higher quality life uh, without without the road. I mean, you, you you get on your bike and you walk and you you enjoy a nice neighborhood. And and I, you know, I've I've enjoyed that part of you a, a lot. So I is there a you know is there a silver lining to some of this? Well, I think so. I mean, I think so. How does this all end? I think that I think that 
people who experience that, more and more people experience living like that in a city where they don't need a car, right? Or when they need a car, they can call uh, an Uber or a taxi or they can get a car to go. Um, I think more and more people experience that. So you see within our within our city a growing political constituency for that. And that's great. Um, but that's that's within our urban area. And I don't know how much that's replicable elsewhere. I think the other place where this all comes to a head is just that the financial reality is inexorable. It's just not something you can, you know, you can you can ignore it and you can happy talk your way past it. We'll just raise more taxes. Right. We'll just we'll figure that out in the future. But at some point, it all comes to a head. And so, for example, in King County, the county that Seattle's located in, they've actually been letting roads go to gravel. They just don't have the money to maintain some of their county roads. And that's a reality that they now have to confront. Um, and I know from reading Strong Towns and reading other things that there are some state departments of transportation that have you know, confronted that reality and told the public the truth which is we don't have the, the funding to continually expand the system. We have to think about what we're going to maintain and how we're going to maintain it. So I, I think that's the other piece. I think the financial inexorability of it has to come to bear at some point or another. Um, even in the city of Seattle, which is prosperous and funding, putting more money into its roads than ever before, um, again, there's, there's more needs than we can fund. And at, at some point, there's going to be a realistic look at that. And, and choices made rather than just pushing off to the future. Um, but I, 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 think it, I think it's going to take real leadership uh, and a deeper understanding from the public to demand some accountability on this, on these projects. Yeah. Hey, um, if you... You're doing, you're doing great work, Chuck. Oh, thank you. I just want to say that. You're doing great work because the work you're doing that really... I mean, I, and I don't want to be too critical of people on this either. When I was... Working in my neighborhood, I wanted sidewalks. And it's like, well, there's got to be money for sidewalks. We just need to raise more taxes. Um, you know, I, I believe that, too, that it was just a question of building the will to build more taxes. And, right. And we could do it. And, you know, spending enough time in this field and being in the mayor's office and seeing what our budgets actually look like, seeing the bills for water, electricity, sewer infrastructure, all of those things really drove home to me something I was already concerned about, which is how do we get the money to take care of what we have as well as invest in all the things we need for the future? And transit's one of them. Dealing with global warming is another. The reality of global warming is another. How do we get all that money? And, you know, it's not a limitless amount. We, it, we're, we're entering an era of choices. And, and I got it. But I think a lot of people aren't there yet. They don't understand the choices that really exist. Right. And and the limitations on us and and that's gonna take a lot of hard work and a lot of education to get there. So thank you for everything you do, Chuck. Well you're doing great work. Thank you. I tell you that the no new roads thing is a hard one because uh you know a, a big big portion of our audience it comes from that camp of we gotta, you know, we may have to give up some roads to get this, or we may have to do this to get what we want. And it's a, it's a tough sell. I tell you, um, 
you know, my wife and I uh, are both from here in central Minnesota and we love it here and we love raising our kids. But if there was a place in this country uh, that I was thinking about moving, it, it would be a place where you were, were smart enough to make you mayor. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Chuck. And, and I think that I know you're, you're trying to wrap this up, but I I think that you see people voting with their feet. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing that's going to change this. So we talk a lot about that the younger generation prefers urban living. And and a lot of time that's presented as if they're making an aesthetic choice. And I don't think we appreciate the degree to which it's a financial choice. You know, they, to, to live in a place that requires a car and driving all the time, that's expensive. And yeah, living in a downtown or living in a city is, is expensive, but... Maybe if you can find a neighborhood where the rent isn't so high and when you got good transit and you have everything within walking distance, that's actually an affordable choice for a lot of, of young people. And and I think that's the other thing that's going to drive the change is, you know, financial reality of individuals right. is going to drive greater demand for good walkable neighborhoods with transit. Well, and I, I think and I see I mean, I see it happening. I see cities that are great cities like Seattle. Uh, where the politicians and, and the leaders making these big decisions are, are very out of touch with the lives that people are living. And, you know, I, I think it's going to take a little bit of time to catch up, but you can certainly see it in places where people have voted with their feet, that the dialogue there is starting to change. And, and I think that that's going to be reflected very soon in in the leadership of a lot of these places. So I... I hope there's more people like you out there who are able to uh, enunciate this because I, I don't want to I, yeah, I don't want to skip a whole generation before we get to the, the millennials that want to run a place because they freak me out anyway. So I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I love the millennials. I love the millennials. And, uh, and and a lot of them get it. Yeah, it's so, true. You know, I, yeah, I agree. I, you, I think you're going to see I think you're going to see that and that and that will change politics. And that will change politics. It's it's like when they talk about the history of ideas. It's oftentimes not that the younger scientists with the better ideas convince the older scientists. It's just that the younger scientists become the leaders. Eventually. Right. It's Dar and Darwin. I, I, I read this fascinating quote at the end of Origin of Species. Someone, I read a book that that quoted it, and I I went and got Origin of Species and said, "Is this really in there?" And it was. Uh, Darwin said essentially. Yeah, I know my ideas are going to be controversial, and I know there's a whole generation of people that will just outright reject them because they're used to a different paradigm. But those people are going to die off, and new people will come up, and they'll they'll uh, give my ideas a fair shake. And I feel confident when that happens that everything will work out. Well, I know, I know. We'd like to have it happen faster, and we really would like all of our – and we'd like everybody to stick around as long as possible and enjoy it, too. Right, so exactly. So I'm not rooting for that to be the solution. No, me But, but I, am, me I am pleased to see that the younger generation gets it and, and is going to keep pushing for change. Well, Mayor Michael McGinn, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being a good friend and uh, for taking the time to help us out here. You take care. Okay, you too. I'll thanks, talk to you sir. soon. Bye-bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns.
We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a start. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. 